But I knew in academia, you do a postdoc, and then something happens, and then you're a PI. So That's pretty much it. Right. There are people who look like me who don't think they can do it, and they have the mind for science. I just want to encourage them. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we're recording at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. Where we'll talk with a group of postdocs who take their faculty training seriously. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 91. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan, we're here, not in my living room. No, we are uh, sitting in the front of a group of people who are staring at us. <laughs> very unusual, but uh, we're excited to be here. And we have a very special treat. We asked for a Tennessee, Nash, uh, like a Nashville, Tennessee local beer, and we got gigantic cans. These are the biggest cans of beer I've ever seen. Let's see, let's see what we have here. So I've got, we have I've got two a sheet. cans. I can like literally hardly get my hand around this beer. So this is the Hollow Point Schloss Beer. Hollow Point Brewing. <laughs> I'm just reading what the can Schloss says. Schloss Beer. I can't even say it. Schloss Beer Dunkel. Is that how you say that? Dunkel? Okay. I got a thumbs up. So this is a German dark lager, low to moderate alcohol, uh, which is probably safer. And uh, 5.3 ABV. 5.3 ABV. And yep. I think a fairly new brewery. So we're getting to try something that not a lot of people have tried. Yeah. And Cheers. thanks, by the way, to... Thanks to Wilson for going and picking up the beer. Okay, that is delicious. I'm hooked. Wow, that's really good. We have non-beer drinkers up on the panel today who say they like it. Yeah, we should actually introduce, yeah, we have some guests uh, seated up here with us. Um, why, don't we, why don't you all introduce yourself? Who, who's sitting here with us? Hi, my name is Roshani Quarles, and I'm a postdoc here in the chemistry department. My name is Lillian Brady. I'm a postdoc in the pharmacology department. And my name is Diego Mason. I'm a postdoc in biomedical informatics and computer science. All right. And, and you three are from the Academic Pathways uh, postdoc program. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. We're also, uh, we've passed the beer around. How many people got beer out in the audience? A Not few. enough. One Not row. Enough. Sorry. One row. <laughs> Took it all. These are 32-ounce cans, Steve. You have to share. Yeah. So what we're going to do, uh, this is our first ever live show. Uh, so this is really different, but... Uh, hopefully, this will be enjoyable. We're going to try to keep this as normal as possible. This is behind the scenes how we do this, except we normally aren't at a big, long table in a lecture hall with uh, people sitting next to us, but we'll see how this goes. Um, usually, when we do record this show, we are at my house, drinking staring, a beer. Staring deeply into each other's eyes. Just and like this. <laughs> <laughs> kind of true. And so, I guess, Dan, are you ready for Vanderbilt edition of Science in the News? I'm so ready. Okay, everybody has purchased coffee in the last 10 years. And there's I, a little... I had three cups of coffee today. Okay. You're going to regret that in a second. little warning label on the side of your cup of coffee says, caution, contents may be hot, right? Because uh, somebody spilled coffee on themselves, and uh, there was a lawsuit, and now the, the cup says that. Hopefully you've read that in California, those cups will now say, contains acrylamide, a chemical known to the state of California to cause cancer. Have you read this? So a lawsuit uh, was brought in California that recognized basically that acrylamide in laboratory animals causes cancer, and so they are now required at Starbucks 
to put this warning about cancer on the side of your cup of coffee. How are those three cups, Josh? Is that actually, well, only one, only one of them was Starbucks. <laughs> uh, the point isn't whether it's Starbucks or not. Um, but it's actually required, like, that this actually happened. The law passed last week, yes. So on the cup, this will be like cigarettes, but on, like that warning label, but on coffee. Yes. Just at Starbucks of. or all coffee? I think they're starting with the bigger uh, chains first, but I think ultimately it is a, a recognized carcinogen in California and they will be required to list this. Is this like lead? So lead only causes uh, problems in California, if I read the, <laughs> the label right. Correct? Yeah, you're safe. Where did yeah. you drink your coffee today? Uh, if it was not California, Nashville, Tennessee. You're totally yeah. safe. Mm-hmm. Totally safe. Um, yeah, so the acrylamide is formed in the roasting process. Everybody familiar with the Maillard reaction where you pan fry something and it kind of browns and you get that good stuff? It's delicious. Yeah, well, that causes cancer, apparently. Uh, Grill marks. (laughs) The acrylamide is formed in that roasting process, and this is the same type of uh, warning that they put on French fries in California. So I've got a picture of a Happy Meal uh, package in California where it actually says on the bottom of the Happy Meal chemicals known to cause cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm may be present in foods or beverages sold or served here. It's like, enjoy your Happy Meal, kids. (laughs) Your prize is birth defects, I guess. Um, And and so the research, I I spent way too much time learning about acrylamide research this week. Um, The animal studies that were able to demonstrate that acrylamide causes thyroid cancer and other types of cancer in lab rats they administered um, several milligrams per kilogram to the rats and mice, and they had to basically uh, force it on them. So I don't think that's going to be the situation that any of us encounter. Um, and there are a lot of studies of human cancers and their relationship to acrylamide, and there is almost no evidence that uh, acrylamide causes cancers in humans. But uh, that warning label is there. And I have a list of different foods and how much acrylamide they contain, if you'd like to see that. I would love to see that. Okay, so potato chips, 597.5 micrograms per kilogram of potato chips. Yeah, we, I, I, we should have asked the audience what foods they think have the most acrylamide. Go ahead and ask. Potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> French fries. Those are bad. Prune juice. Apparently not very good for you. Uh, on an acrylamide front. Canned black olives. Yeah. You don't eat those anyway. Who likes olives? Nobody likes olives. Who likes olives? I do. I actually like olives, too. Especially on my potato chips. (laughs) It's like nachos, right? So we've got potato chips at uh, close to 600 uh, micrograms per kilogram of weight and of mass. Forgive me. Uh, Cheerios contain 266 micrograms per kilogram, so that seems pretty bad. The interesting thing is Starbucks Columbia ground coffee, uh, the just... Coffee beans themselves contain 163, but you don't eat coffee grounds. The brewed coffee contains seven micrograms per kilogram. Mm. So on the spectrum of things... So that's one one-hundredth of the potato chips. Right. The prune juice at 214 seems like it should have a warning label on it to me. Can I, can I tell a really quick aside about prune juice? It's your this podcast, is, Josh. Is, Do it. <laughs> that's true. Uh, my daughter had a science fair presentation in her first grade class last week. And, and there were some pretty good science experiments there, but one of them was there's a kid who was looking at the impacts of sugar on your teeth, which is pretty interesting, I think. Did that get um, approval from the IRB? Uh, well, well, so what the, what the 
the young researcher did was used eggs as a substitute, as a model for teeth. And so, so what he did was he soaked eggs in different liquids for eight hours, and then he had those on display. And so you're probably not surprised what the worst liquid was for eroding the, the outside of the eggshell. Easter egg dye? Soda, right, of course, like uh, regular Coca-Cola. Prune juice was the second worst. Not orange juice? No. Why are we talking about this? I don't know. <laughs> I'll edit this out, or okay. maybe I won't. No, you probably leave it anyway, in. Anyway, go ahead. That's good. So I have a couple concerns about this study, or, or a couple concerns about this lawsuit. I think it's probably relevant to limit your intake of French fries. That seems like an all right thing. I don't know that we need acrylamide as a, a scare tactic. My concern is that the next label that goes on when something is actually dangerous gets ignored because no one is going to stop drinking coffee because of acrylamide, at least. Uh, I'm not. Would you stop drinking coffee? No. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. And the other thing is there are studies indicating that uh, coffee drinking helps prevent certain types of cancer, heart disease, dementia, type 2 diabetes, um, and certainly deaths due to sleeping at the wrong place in time. So <laughs> I think the overall benefit of coffee, I think this is going to be ignored. And I'm not sure what to do about it other than... Not drink coffee in California. California going to do what California going to do. It's so true. I love California, by the way. I do. Anybody from California? Yeah. Right coffee on. drinker? Okay. Yeah. So the answer is science in the news that we're going to ignore the science. All right. Good. All right. Well, on to our topic. All right, Dan. So actually, just a few minutes ago, we, we talked uh, about some of the things that are important to us and why we started the show. And one of the things that we went over was the importance of training mentors, of training our PIs to be better, better mentors specifically. And so, you know, what, one thing we thought about is, on one hand, it would be great to provide training for our PIs so that they can be better mentors. But wouldn't it be better to actually train them before they became mentors? And did a lot of damage. Right. And Vanderbilt apparently has a program that is cognizant of the fact that your lab work is not necessarily preparing you to manage people and projects and money. And so we've invited three people that are part of this academic pathways program to come tell us about what they are learning so that hopefully other universities can mimic this and do the same type of training. So we've got uh, to my right. Lillian. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, you, you said, you, which department are you part of? Pharmacology. Pharmacology. And what brought you into this program? Okay. So, like I said, my name is Lillian. I'm from Mississippi. I got my Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Master of Science in Biotechnology from Alcorn State University. It's a small HBCU. Then I went on to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where I got my Ph.D. in Neurobiology um, about a year ago, actually. And Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and now I'm here as a part of the Academic Pathways program. Um, so. Awesome. And, and uh, maybe pass it down. Can you say a little bit about uh, how you got here? Okay. My name is Roshani Quarles. I got my bachelor's from Southern University in chemistry. I uh, recently completed my PhD last, it's about a year as well, uh, last May at Louisiana State University in chemistry, organic chemistry. And I transitioned here in September into the Academic Pathways program 
in the chemistry department. Hi, uh, my name is Diego. I'm originally from Miami, Florida, and I did my undergraduate in computer engineering at the University of Florida, go Gators. And then I did my PhD at UC San Diego, so I'm very familiar with California's uh, insistence on alerting you about cancer and everything. I just graduated a year ago as well, that my PhD was in bioengineering, and now I have a joint appointment in biomedical informatics and computer science here at Vanderbilt. Okay, and who would like to tell us what the Academic Pathways Program is and does? Nobody. Okay. Yeah, I figured. Good for it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I figured it was going to be me. <laughs> the Academic Pathways Program was meant as a program to encourage diversity in, in academia. Uh, specifically, it, it started off as a much smaller program than, than, it, was, than it is now. Uh, even though we're its first cohort, it was initially envisioned as a program to encourage women, uh, female minority, in uh, presence in academia. And then, you know, other schools and, and Vanderbilt added on to that and kind of threw in a pot of money to get this whole big program together called the Academic Pathways Program. And so that kind of expanded. Um, and you see me sitting here, you know, <laughs> as, part, as part of this fellowship. So the program is kind of meant as a bridge to help PhDs kind of uh, not just get or their normal research uh, training as a postdoc, but also get training in all of the, the you know, kind of soft skills that you would need to actually be a successful PI, ranging from, you know, what does it mean to be a good mentor? What does it mean to be, you know, not someone who's actively doing science as opposed to someone now who's directing science? Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot involved in how you have to, you know, change your thinking about that. There's also a lot of skills that, we, that they give us just by... Not so much skills, but just opportunities in meeting deans, meeting assistant deans, me meeting a person who's in charge of this pot of money, meeting a person who's in charge of this kind of faculty development. So really it's kind of giving you a, uh, a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to run a university, what it takes to run a lab, and just all of the training necessary for that. So you're in this program that presumably is preparing you for faculty positions, so that presumes that's something you want to do. So, so why did you decide on that path, or when? And, and what drew you to this program specifically? Rashnik's holding Rashnik. the microphone. Hold, okay. Hold the microphone. You got stuck. I guess I'll talk Rashnik, hold that microphone. Um, Don't be afraid of that microphone. I'm not afraid. I'm not uh -huh. afraid. Initially, when I went uh, to undergrad, I wanted to be a pharmacist because you do two years of chemistry and then four years of pharmacy school, and I'm done. I'm making 90K a year, and I'm happy. That and sounds awesome. It sounded awesome. It Where was do I my apply? plan. <laughs> And I was ace in chemistry, and one of my professors pulled me out, and she's like, hey, I know what you're thinking, but this looks like a better alternative for you. You should stick here and get the degree. And I was like, well, this will be a long, I'll go ahead and get the degree. I'll, I'll spend the four years, get the degree, and then I'll still go to pharmacy school, make my 90K, and be happy. And so as a junior, she came back to me, and she's like, hey, you know, you should think about going to medical school. That's not for me. It's just not, I'm, me and blood don't get along. I don't like to look at my blood, let alone other people's blood. So this is not going to work. So we talked about graduate school and her path and those things. And I applied. Applied to several places. I applied to Ohio State. I applied to Baylor. I applied to LSU. And I got into all of those places. But I chose to stay home, little me, and go to LSU. Ultimately, finding out about this program was through my mentors. So as a graduate student, I started collecting mentors, what I call my board of mentors. They are 
different people at different levels and offer me different things. Some people are more professional and personal. Some people are just professional. I need career development in this area. I want grant writing experience. I want you to edit this kind of thing. And they all became part of my mentoring committee. And so one of my mentors actually sent me the journal, uh, a link to the journal for blacks in higher education. And in there was this opportunity. And I applied, got offered to come and present my research, and the rest is history. I'm interested in how you assembled a team of mentors. It sounds like you had to do something. They didn't come to you. So no, they didn't, they didn't come to me. Pay attention, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I, it sounds valuable. So that um, professor from my chemistry, my freshman chemistry course, actually also invited me to some conferences. And so I went to a Nobuche conference pretty much every year in undergrad, as well as ACS conferences. And they were paid for by a fellowship that I secured as an, a scholarship that I secured as an undergrad and was able to go to these different conferences and meet people from other institutions, as well as people who were actually at my campus and I just never ran into them. So that allowed me to network with them. And once you contact somebody frequently, they're pretty much your person. <laughs> like, I'll tell them that, hey, you know, I really am interested in you mentoring me in this specific area, sending them that email, just kind of letting them know that that's what you want from them so that you've established that relationship. I love that. Let's write that down. Yeah, so Lillian, what led you to come to the Academic Pathways program? Um, well, for me, when I started graduate school, I always said I would never be a PI because they don't look happy. Same. Um, it doesn't look like an enjoyable experience. But then I realized that's all I've been trained for is to be a PI. So I, I, I saw the announcement for this Academic Pathways program on Facebook. There was kind of like this closed group that I was a part of, of women in science or something, or grad school. And um, I was like, well, that looks cool. Vanderbilt's close, you know, semi-close to home where, like, my parents can't just pop up on me. But, um, <laughs> like, they have to call and let me know before they come. But yeah. they're still, like, in driving distance. They won't or, stay a long time. Right, yeah. right. And so I kind of just like applied and I was like, you know, if it's meant for me, I'll get it. If not, then I'll figure something else out. But I applied and, you know, got accepted. And I was like, well, we're just going to roll with it. Um, <laughs> see what happens. I'm more interested in being a PI now since I'm in this program for an, an academic path. What, what changed your mind? Is it, is it less <laughs> It's going to sound funny, uncertain? but I'm just yeah, like, it's, it's a little less uncertain because I feel like in graduate school, there was a when I was in graduate school, there was a push for these alternate careers outside of academia. And I would go to all these seminars, but they never actually told me like, okay, what are the specific steps I can take to get to this alternate career? Um, but I knew in academia, you do a postdoc and then something happens and then you're a PI. So <laughs> um, That's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, this fellowship seems to provide that something that happened. So I was just going to go there. That's so interesting that that the the options were presented. And what you said is they were trying to kind of encourage you people to go to different careers that were outside of the faculty track, but nobody described the steps to take. Right. We all now we what? got seminars with people that were, you know, in industry and in all these other places, but they never actually like specifically said like I did this and then I got that. It was along the lines of like networking or a chance, you know someone gave them a chance, but I, I don't know how to network. 
Right. I'm I'm weird. I don't I don't know. I don't know how to do no, stuff. No, so but, I was just like, eh, I'm gonna just. I know how to apply for things, and I know how to yep. write, <laughs> and so that's what we're gonna do. And there are not mentors in the lab and on campus that know that either because they didn't do it. The people that you can get access to on campus have gone the faculty track. Exactly. So I'm I'm curious. So obviously you all are postdocs, so you're doing the typical postdoc thing where you're in the lab working on your project. But you mentioned that there are some other skills you're learning too that are relevant to pursuing faculty positions. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what other training you're getting as part of this program that you wouldn't necessarily get in a traditional postdoc. So I'll keeps I'll getting first. stuck with the microphone. <laughs> no problem, no problem. So I've actually attended several uh, workshops here at Vanderbilt that were not offered at my home institution. Uh, Vanderbilt has some internal funding, and the Brett Office for Postdocs actually encourages students to apply for those fundings, as well as grant writing workshops, things of that nature. The program that we're a part of actually encourages us to seek out mentors on this campus and have them be a part of our committee to kind of encourage us on the path. So if we, we all want to do academic paths, so what is the outline? And they've actually talked to us about what we need to be doing at what stage of our career. So we all have a two to three year postdoc. So within the fall semester of this year, I'll actually be going on the job market. So I didn't know that. I thought, hey, I'm doing this two-year postdoc. I got two years, right? I had no idea before I sat down and talked with my mentors. So just to have someone who's been through this and encouraging me that, hey, this is how you apply for funding. This is how you start putting together your packet. Those kind of things. People who are willing to do that for us and with us is something that this program offers that I know asking questions as a graduate student about how does this process work, people were very vague but this program is, is actually helping us figure that route out. I just also would like to say that uh, one thing that I was really impressed about this program was actually the interview process. So I, I also applied for other fellowships, and the fellowship application was, you know, three upload boxes where you have to upload your CV, a statement, statement A, statement B, and research plan, you know, you know and that was it. So, uh, but for this program, the interview was actually... It was really intense, so it's only nice in retrospect. <laughs> having gone through and having been accepted, it was a wonderful interview process, obviously. But you, you got invited. You did not submit a research plan. You got invited to come here, and you had to select the faculty member that you, or one or two that you wanted to visit with. And during your three or four days that you were here, you had to craft a research statement with them. So you had, sev- you had ample opportunity to meet with them, uh, you, know, to dis- you know, to discuss your interests, their interests, and all of you together came up with a research plan that was then presented to the committee for selection. And that was part of your selection process. And I think that was, as far as all the fellowships that I've seen, that was unique to this program. And I thought it was my favorite part of the, of the whole thing because it really gave you an opportunity to see yourself fit in this campus before they just blinded you with the sum of money and you know you just accepted because, damn, that's a lot of money. So, so, so one, one thing that, that Lillian, you said that, I thought was really interesting is you said this program has made you more interested in becoming a faculty member. And anytime I hear something that seems to go against sort of conventional wisdom and experience in science, it it makes me interested in learning about what's going on there. So typically, I think on average, people become less interested in becoming a faculty member over time. Um, So one, I'm curious if, if the rest of you have had that similar experience 
um, of becoming even more interested in being a faculty member as you've kind of progressed through a postdoc in this program. But also, I thought it was interesting that, you know, realizing on one hand, we feel like as trainees that the thing we're most being trained to do is to become a faculty member. But on the other hand, it's still a very mysterious process of how you actually get to be a faculty member, even though that's on one level the thing we feel like we're being trained to do. So I guess the first thing, do you all feel like this program has impacted the degree to which you want to be a faculty member? For me it has, and that and I would say that's mainly because like of you know, so now there's this whole like push for diversity or whatever. And I feel like the only way that that's gonna get better at the faculty level is if I can just stick it out, stay with it, and, you know, help the next people coming up. So that's kind of why I say I'm more interested in becoming a faculty member for that reason. I still feel it's like it's... not just the science that you're contributing. It's you're yeah. changing the culture of science. Exactly. Well, that, uh, that's a good lead-in to, to one thing that I did want to talk about, and that is, you know, something that, that you all mentioned and is evident when you look at the information about the program is that is uh, a key goal of this program is to address the issue of the fact there is a severe underrepresentation of underrepresented groups at the faculty level at large research institutions in, in science departments. I know that's true at my institution, and I suspect that's true of other institutions too. I guess first, can you talk a little bit about and, and how you feel like this program is, is helping address that problem. And, and when you talked a little bit about this, how does it feel to be on the precipice of possibly becoming a faculty member given the current extreme underrepresentation of, of faculty from underrepresented groups? So, um, <clears throat> only tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think diversity is an issue. So, you know, like about the, the leaky pipeline or whatever, like mm -hmm. the further you along, like the more people are falling out of the back. So, there's, even less underrepresented people, right? And we don't see we don't see ourselves in the next stage. Mainly because like being underrepresented is very isolating. So by the time you get out, you're like, I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> like I've I've done this, I feel like a lot a lot of times by myself. So if you can go get to the next stage, like I feel like eventually you just get weeded out because it's just it's exhausting <laughs> really but if you can stick with it then you know eventually hopefully it'll get better and that's what I'm just trying to do stick with it oh it's so important I think it's it's easy sitting sitting here and saying oh I went to grad school and and you know a million people just like me went to grad school and then they all became faculty members and I there's no um no burden on me because I, I can go do I can go do what people have done before me a thousand times. What you're saying is I don't I don't see people that are, are necessarily look like me or that are part of my um, culture group or whatever, and so this must not be the right job. That, that that's the expectation. And if you push through that, then uh, you're the only one there. There's not a lot of efforts I think to retain faculty once they do get the position again, they still feel isolated in that sense. So there's not a lot of retention of faculty at that level. That should be addressed. So knowing those challenges, so I mean, I think we would all agree it's hard enough to be a new faculty member anyway. Like it's a challenging thing to do. Clearly being maybe the first person who looks like you to do it in a department is an even an extra barrier to have to, to jump over. So why are you doing it? So like all of my stories, they start back in undergrad. So as I mentioned, I went to Southern University. It's an HBCU, and the majority of my professors were black. Um, and that really impacted me. So going to graduate, 
school at a PWI, a predominantly white institution at LSU, there was one black faculty member, tenured faculty, Dr. Isaiah Warner. So seeing that, the, the, the change and the number of faculty at a more research intensive university kind of interested me because I, I wanted to know how did he do this? Why is he so successful and so many others aren't? And so it's difficult in the sense that I was actually told by a professor who shall be nameless that there are no great black academics. And that blew my mind. The person said it to, like, to your face? Yes, like we're sitting at a table just like this. She's sitting across from me. This is a round table discussion. And we were discussing diversity. Why, why aren't more diverse professors being brought in and being interviewed, at least interviewed, so we can see them? And that was her response. It surprised me, and it hurt me, but it also motivated me. Because I'm sorry that's what you think. I know a lot of them. I go to conferences every year, and I talk to these people, and they love what they do. They are exceptional in science. They have lots of publications. And so for me, I want to be that mentor for somebody else because there are people who look like me who don't think they can do it, and they have the mind for science. They have the passion. They have the drive. I just want to encourage them. And not necessarily people that look like me, people that don't think they can do it, period. Because a lot of people, especially women, get defeated because they don't look like their male counterparts. They don't necessarily think like their male counterparts, but that is what makes science so diverse, our diversity in thought, your diversity in experience. So for me, it's I can get to this level so I can pull somebody else up to this level. You think science with more diversity, more diverse people is better science? I do. I do too. How about you, Diego? Well, I mean, just echoing everything these ladies said, for, for, for myself, education was always seen as a way towards um, financial liberation. So, I mean, that goes back to the question as to why I, I came to grad school, right? Like my whole family... You've been a pharmacist. I, my, my, whole, my whole family was like, you're going to go to college and you're going to make big bucks, right? So that, that was always the plan. And I actually fell into research through... It, it, it was just a series of fortunate or unfortunate events that led to me, one after the other, a door opened at the right time and I left my job at Subway to, to, to join a research job at a lab and not knowing anything about it and you know I had a mentor that was the first person to tell me that you know grad school exists um it's something that it's it's you know it's really great and this and that and he he told me he was like and you know what you, you know as a Hispanic kid you're a shoe and I'm sure you can get some funding really easy because they were just giving those away to minorities these days <laughs> and makes you feel like you earned it right yeah it, it, it was one of those like catch 22 things because you know he was talking about a mechanism that it's supposed to be a positive thing but it it, it didn't end up feeling like that in, in any in any kind of way but just like Roshanik said it was really important for me uh to kind of show people that you could get an education and, and, and continue in science and research for the sake of science and research. Not, you know, like, um, not just to go get a job as a computer programmer or as a doctor that you think you're supposed to do. You, you know, you can do something just for the, the sake and the beauty of science. Um, and so that, that's why I thought I should go and become a professor. And inspire the next generation. And it sounds like you have that, that inspiration. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if 
Vanderbilt gets me a job, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're, we're about through all of, all of our questions that, that we wanted uh, you, to ask. You've got one last one. So um, this is your chance to give any advice that you have for the, the people sitting out here and the people that will be soon listening to this um, who are graduate students or postdocs. What is the thing that you wish somebody had told you? Take a break. After you finish your PhD, yes, take please. a break. Like At least a month. Like a month where no one's waiting on you to do anything in the lab. No one's expecting you anywhere. It's just like, take a break. Did you do that? I did not. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> please take Learn a break. From her <laughs> please take a break. That's it. Would you like a break now? I would. I would. I'd be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Summer vacation. I'm cool right now, but you know, <laughs> I will always take a break if I can. Any advice? I have a couple of pieces of, of advice. Um, my first is find mentors early and often. How many people sitting here have somebody that they would call a mentor? And your advisor is not necessarily your 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 mentor. It's it's okay okay if your advisor is your mentor, but sometimes they can't see the forest for the trees. They can't see your career because they're looking at their own. So they're helpful, but they don't have to be your only mentor. They don't have to be that only God. You can seek help from other people who have different paths, who didn't do what you necessarily want to do, but have some idea, or they can point you in the right direction. Have you ever had somebody say, no, I don't want to be a mentor? You ask a lot of people, apparently. I haven't. And so, yeah, so people want to help. Yeah, people, people are generally helpful. If they can't do it, they will tell you who can do it better. Like, most people don't take on more than they can handle. So they'll suggest someone else. Even if it's like, I can help you with this portion, but I'm not very good in this area. But I know Sharon can. So Sharon will take you on, no problem. I'll... Sit down. We'll have coffee, just the three of us. Sharon's great. Sharon's great. Sharon's great. (laughs) Also, apply. It can't hurt to apply. I applied for several postdoc opportunities, and I got two major ones. And I was shocked because little old me, who wants little old me? So apply. Even if you don't think you're going to get, apply anyway. Let them tell you no, and don't think rejection is failure. Rejection means I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to move on. And don't be overwhelmed. We're all going through something. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. Don't let the overwhelming feeling stop you from doing more. You have to work through that. Because sometimes it's harder to do than it is to think about. And my last piece of advice is be nice to yourself because you're your biggest critic. And so sometimes it's that internal voice that hurts you more than what someone else says. So true. Diego? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure there's much to say after that. Yeah, try and follow that one up. <laughs> that, that, was, that was... He's going to say exactly the opposite. Be mean to yourself. <laughs> that was wonderful advice. Avoid That's like, sharing at all costs. <laughs> That's like 99% of the advice that you know, anyone could give. So that, that was great. But I would just, maybe in the spirit of saying... On ending on something controversial, I'd say um, one, of the, uh, one of the worst pieces of advice I got was even as graduate students, everyone sees that there's things about academia that are bad. The, the, the publishing incentives of funding mechanisms, you know, there are things that we see that are very bad, but all we can do is just talk about it and say, well, you know, but we, we all have to continue because we're more junior in our career. And really the only people that speak up are the, are the people who are already 
full professors. They're the ones who, can, who are usually the loudest voices about what's messed up in academia. So with that in mind, one of the worst pieces of advice that I got was no one's going to take you seriously until you've played the game well enough to progress in this system that you don't like. So like just basically it was just be quiet, write your papers, get your tenure, and then you can start to be an agent for change. And that sounds good, but it, I don't think it is good because what people don't realize is that the way corrupt, well, corrupt, or the, the way these bad, complicated systems perpetuate themselves is through the action of the members that are going through it, feeling they have no other option. That's the only way that you know this huge academic machine that has a lot of problems continues is by you know postdocs, first year faculty, second year faculty saying, "Well, I got it. I got to get mine. I got to do what I have to do to, to keep it to keep it going." That's how these systems continue. And, you know, it's only looking back that you say, oh, wow, that was kind of messed up. So my advice would be is, is to take a step back and, you know, look at the bigger picture and ask yourself if you want to be a mechanism of this system's perpetuation or you draw a line in the sand somewhere and say, I'm going to be the graduate student that I'm happy with being or I'm going to be the postdoc that I'm happy with being or the first year faculty that I'm happy with being and maybe... Maybe that'll come at a cost. Maybe I won't get a job or maybe I won't do this, but at least you will, you will feel happy with what you did and what you didn't do. So that's, that's the best advice that I could give. That's great. I wanted to echo something that Rashnik said. I was at a, a workshop a few weeks ago about imposter syndrome, and it, w- it was led by um, a woman, Dr. Valerie Ashby, who is a dean at Duke, and excellent speaker. But she, she gave the example of, you know, let's imagine that, that I was a, a graduate student and I was doing a PCR in my lab, and I forgot to add the TAC polymerase, and so it didn't work, right? And so I told Dan about it, like, oh, Dan, I had a rough day today. Uh, my PCR messed up because I didn't add my TAC polymerase. And, and Dan says, you idiot. You did that last week. Like, you are so dumb. No, yeah, I mean, that's probably what Dan would say, honestly. I would never say that. He would never that. say that. I would right? come up with something way more creative. <laughs> 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 the, the point being, um, if your friend came up to you and told you I had an awful day, I screwed up my experiment, you would never react that way, right? What would you say? What would you say? You can always repeat the experiment. Of course, right. We would all respond that way, but that's not how we always respond to ourselves, right, when we make a mistake. We, we're a friend to other people, but we're not a friend to ourselves. And so I think that was, that was a great advice and an important thing to remember. So I just want to say thank you, Lillian and Rashanik, um, and thank you all for... Uh, what was your name? Diego. <laughs> Diego. See, I forgot. I'm going to edit that out like I didn't forget. And Diego. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, let's give a hand to our, our guests on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right, Dan, you have, a, you have a word of the week. Okay, everybody should be able to get this one. It's, it's quite straightforward. The clue last week for the etymology puzzle was measure the width and periphery to derive this transcendental number. Any guesses out there? So the way this works, if you have not heard the show, is there's a scientific word meaning in the clue. Okay, so the answer was pi. And pi is actually the first Diego letter. Diego got it. Did he get it? Yeah. See, math. It's all about are you math. Gonna, are you going to send Diego an Amazon gift card? I, I have an uh, Andrew one, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, pi is the first Greek letter in the word peripheria, which is periphery, uh, which is how you get, get to pi. So I thought that was... 
wildly fascinating because I'm a giant geek, as I have uh, demonstrated many times in the past. So Andrew was our winner. He sent it from a Gmail account, so I have no idea where Andrew is from, but we'll send him an Amazon gift card. Um, and the clue for this week is inspired by our trip to Tennessee, and that's all I'm going to say for hints. This North American bird can mimic many tongues of other species in order to attract a mate. One more time. This North American bird can mimic the many tongues of other species in order to attract a mate. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select the winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. By the way, this is a genus and species. I do not want the common name. Well, that takes me out of the running. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's why I do it. All right. Well, this has been a great show. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or leave a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click on the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. want to say a special thanks to our guests today and to our live audience here at Vanderbilt. And we'll be back at you next time. We'll see you then.